Hubble shows us exactly what happened after Dart's impact. A new way to clean off lunar regolith, seeing the same supernova three different times in a gravitational lens, and a new version of Starlink launches. All this and more in this week's episode of Space Bites. The Dart mission is just the gift that keeps on giving as we get a chance to see more and more information about what happened when NASA smashed a spacecraft into an asteroid just to find out what happens. And what we found out was that the impact was strong enough to move the asteroid in a way that shortened its orbital time around its parent asteroid and blew out an enormous amount of debris. According to current estimates, it was about 900,000 kilograms of asteroid debris was thrown off into space. And this week, we got a series of images from the Hubble Space Telescope that showed us how this explosion unfolded over time. So right at the beginning, you got this long debris cone that came out of Dimorphos. And then you got these long filaments that stretched away from the impact site. But then as the gravitational interactions between Didymus and Dimorphos continued to interact with all of the ejected particles, you got this strange spiraling features in the debris cloud. But then the light pressure coming from the sun took over and pushed the debris far away from the asteroids and created this comet like tail. And so thanks to Hubble, we got to see how this initial impact unfolded over time into this very dramatic impact. So take that as a warning asteroids that plan to impact the Earth. This is what we can do now. Liquid nitrogen to clean moon dust. I've talked many times about how dangerous lunar regolith is going to be when astronauts return to the moon. This stuff is the pulverized remnants of billions of years of meteorite impacts onto the moon, churning up the lunar surface into these tiny glassy particles that get everywhere. They get onto the astronauts fabric of their spacesuits, they get into the machinery, and they get inside astronaut lungs and cause fairly significant damage over time. This has been identified as one of the big hazards of humans exploring the moon. We need to deal with this regolith, minimize the chance that any of it gets anywhere near astronauts lungs or into machinery onto their equipment, it's just going to wear and tear everything down. The traditional idea is that you use a brush that you sweep off this material before you enter any kind of lunar habitat. But the problem is, this stuff is electrostatically charged, and it's very tiny and glassy with almost like, like hook likes like Velcro particles that are electrostatically charged, like you could not have something that is more difficult to remove than regolith. And so engineers have developed a very clever technique to try to remove it. And that's using liquid nitrogen. What they do is spray liquid nitrogen onto a spacesuit, and it will actually collect up almost all of the regolith and carry it away in a way that's harmless. Under their tests, they found that just by spraying this material onto simulated regolith, they were able to remove about 98% of the material. But the other really big advantage is that this is almost entirely harmless to the suit itself. When you use a brush, every time you are brushing off your spacesuit, you're doing tiny amounts of damage to the spacesuit. And so it's hard to say, like, is it, do you want to do damage from the brush or do you want to do damage from the regolith? It's hard to choose which way you go. But with this liquid nitrogen, when you spray it, 
it causes essentially no damage to the material that you're removing the dust from. And a good analogy to sort of think about how it works is like think about when you have a hot frying pan and you dump cold water onto the frying pan. The water collects together into these beads that fall off of the frying pan. It's the same thing with the liquid nitrogen. It's much colder than the dust. And so when you spray it on, it gathers up the dust, beads up and falls off of the spacesuit. So this sounds like a really clever way to be able to remove lunar dust. I wonder if it has any applications in removing Martian regolith from solar panels on Mars spacecraft. Astronomers thought there should be a planet here and then they found it. Now we've mentioned that astronomers have been directly imaging planets for well over a decade now, unlike a certain AI that told us otherwise. But most of the time they have been studying a star, trying to see if they can see any planets around it, moving on to the next star and so on. For the first time, astronomers calculated that there should be a planet around a star and then they found it. The hint came from astrometric Gaia data. They were looking at a star called AF Leporis and they could see that it was wobbling around in a circle thanks to the gravitational interaction of some heavy object around it. This star was never known to have a planet before, but based on these observations from Gaia, the astronomers figured, okay, let's go and take a look at it. So they pointed the European Southern Observatory's very large telescope using its sphere instrument. And this is a very specialized instrument on board this telescope. It's infrared, it has a very powerful coronagraph. It uses the adaptive optics on the very large telescope, and it's able to see a very special kind of light that comes from planets orbiting around stars. So lo and behold, they pointed the telescope at the star and they found the planet. According to their current calculations, it's about two to five times the mass of Jupiter. And so this is, I think, the first time that astronomers have detected the presence of a planet using one spacecraft and then directly imaged it using a very large telescope. Using the very large telescope. This is where you queue up the XKCD giant telescope names joke. Did JWST just explain the epoch of reionization? There is a series of mysteries at the beginning of the universe, and one of these is called the Epic of Reionization. So shortly after the Big Bang, the entire universe was this hot plasma, and then it cooled down to the point that light was finally able to be released out into the universe. So this is the cosmic microwave background radiation that we see today. After that, hydrogen and helium in the universe became neutral. They were no longer a plasma. And then at some point later on, the universe became ionized again. And that's the universe that we live in today. And so astronomers always wondered, what was the process? What took the universe from being neutral to being an ionized plasma again? And astronomers have had a couple of theories. One of them is that it's due to quasars, that these giant supermassive black holes were siphoning in an enormous amount of material, blasting out these huge jets, and these could heat up the surrounding cold neutral gas and ionize it. But the problem with that theory is that quasars were relatively rare early on in the universe and fairly far apart. So it's hard to explain how these quasars could reionize so much of this gas. But another idea is star formation. You've got these young stars in galaxies that are blasting out excessive amounts of radiation. This radiation is impacting the surrounding gas and causing it to be ionized. 
So astronomers used JWST to scan a bunch of galaxies early on in the universe, and they couldn't see the star formation causing this reionization. But what they did find was that these young galaxies were compact and awash in star formation and releasing so much extra energy into their surroundings that by their calculation, it was enough to cause reionization of the universe within a very short time frame. So it's not case closed, but it definitely shows that it's most likely star formation at the beginning of the universe that caused the reionization of the universe. Seeing the same supernova three times. This is a really exciting piece of research. This is a gravitational lens seen by JWST. And these gravitational lenses are always really cool because you get this giant foreground galaxy cluster that's acting as a natural telescope lens to some more distant object. And so you're able to see stuff that is fainter and harder to see as if it's being magnified by this gigantic natural telescope. And in some situations, the light from the more distant galaxy will follow different paths going around this gravitational lens. And so you'll see the same object multiple times in the image. And it's really just the same galaxy, just the light took different pathways to reach us. But in this situation, you've got a supernova seen three different times. And what's amazing is it's seen at three different ages. So in one, you're seeing the supernova pretty much as it happened, then you're seeing it about 300 days after. And then in the final image, you're seeing it about a 1000 days after it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around this that the light took a 1000 days longer to take one pathway around the galaxy cluster than one of the other ways. And that allows you to see this same supernova going off in three snapshots of time. Very exciting. This planet shouldn't exist. Astronomers have found a planet that they thought wouldn't exist. Now, of course, here it is. Therefore, it does exist. Therefore, the astronomers were wrong. But still, it's pretty great. They found a Jupiter sized planet orbiting one of the smaller red dwarf stars out there. In this case, the planet is about the size of Jupiter, but the star itself is only about four times bigger than the planet. And just for comparison, Jupiter is about one tenth the size of the sun. And under traditional theories of planet formation, you shouldn't be able to get a planet this big compared to its star. Now it all comes down to the amount of metals that are available in the star forming nebula. The assumption is that there'd be some kind of ratio connecting between the star and the planets. And so there will only be a certain amount of metal available as the core, the nucleus of the planet as it's forming larger and larger. But in this case, obviously, that's not true, that there was plenty of metal available to form a very large core to a gas giant. And then it was able to use that gravity to accrete a lot more material around it. So I wonder what the limits are going to be as we find more and more planets, are we going to start to find stars that are only twice the size of their planet, double the size of their planet, the same size as their planet? It's going to get pretty strange. Now, keep in mind that the mass of a planet and the size of a planet can vary dramatically. In fact, if you added more mass to Jupiter, it might actually start getting smaller for a while before it starts getting larger. So you're not going to have the star and the planet be the same mass, but they could be similar sizes. Anyway, I, I can't wait to see what the next smallest 
planet compared to the star are going to be. March is Nyack month. This is the series of interviews that I did with the recent winners of NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts Awards. And these are like out of the box ideas for the future of astronomy and space exploration. And we've got four interviews that we're going to be running this month. We're going to release them every Thursday all through March. We've got a new kind of fusion reactor that could melt through the icy moons to reach their subsurface oceans, a planet hunting telescope that could find every single Earth sized world within a few dozen light years growing building material on Mars using bacteria and fungi and peering at the universe in a wavelength that we've never seen before. Now, all of these interviews are already available for all of the patrons. So definitely, if you want to see them early, go to patreon.com slash universe today. But for everybody else, we will be releasing them every Thursday for as long as we have interviews. So enjoy. SpaceX launches version two of Starlink. This week, we saw the launch of version two of Starlink, their second generation of the smaller versions of the Starlinks. They're calling the V2 Mini, and they're implementing a lot of the technology that SpaceX was planning for its much larger V2 Starlinks. The larger ones can only be launched on the upcoming Starship, but until Starship is ready, and who knows when that might be, we've got the Mini version. According to SpaceX, these have about four times the capacity of the first generation. They have a new hull thruster using argon instead of the krypton they were using before. And as they're a little bigger, astronomers were worried that it's going to cause even more light pollution in their telescope. According to SpaceX, they've got a dielectric mirror film and dark paint so that even though they're a little larger, they should have a darker profile in the images of astronomers. But that's what SpaceX says. We'll have to wait for the astronomers to actually run their tests to find out if this is true and if they are darker and cause less of a light pollution impact on their images. This week, we got the launch of Crew-6. They were carried to space on board another Crew Dragon. And actually, this is the fourth launch for Endeavour, and this is the ninth time that SpaceX has launched humans to space on board Crew Dragon. It feels routine now. On board, we've got NASA astronauts Woody Holberg, Stephen Bowen. We've got United Arab Emirates Sultan Al Naidi and cosmonaut Andrei Fedev. And they're going to be completing a six-month mission on board the station and will be relieving the current crew. It's really weird to be giving this news and it's so routine. You know, four humans went to space, replacing the other humans that are in space on this reusable human space launch platform. This is this is our life now. Welcome to the future. Your move, Starliner. A replacement Soyuz has arrived. And I guess what used to be routine is now becoming a little more problematic, but we've got some relief in sight. And that's because a replacement Soyuz has arrived at the International Space Station. This is MS-23, which replaces MS-22. And as you probably recall, MS-22 is the Soyuz that experienced this coolant leak. And based on a lack of coolant, Russia decided that it was not entirely prudent to bring its cosmonauts back down to Earth in a spacecraft that had no ability to cool itself, not necessarily because the astronauts would overheat, but because it might cause a problem with their guidance computers, which the astronauts need. 
The plan is to deorbit the spacecraft and have it land autonomously. And then from that, they'll be able to study and find out what would happen if a spacecraft returned to Earth without coolant. And so was it the right move to send up a replacement or would it have been safe to bring the cosmonauts back on the MS-22? So we'll find out. Even though there is this replacement spacecraft, it's probably going to be pushing out the timelines for the current crews on board the International Space Station. So it's likely that the current team will stick on board for an extra six months, probably coming home in September. And so instead of a six month tour of duty, they're going to end up spending close to a year on board the International Space Station. So I, I guess more science. All right. Those are all the news stories that we had today. Of course, you can find links to all of the stories that we talked about today in the show notes down below. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to David Giltonen, Maud Sue, George, Jeremy Matter, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verabeoff, Josh Schultz, and Andrew Gross, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us. All right, those were all the news stories for today. We'll see you next week.